Well, good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm one of the pastors here with Amy, who is hopefully enjoying a lovely time away with her family this week. Please hold them in your prayers as they are wrapping up their time together. Whew. I'm going to invite you to just join with me in praying for the Holy Spirit's presence. Holy Spirit, we don't even know what to pray for ourselves. And so we pray that you would pray for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that you might do in us more than we can even ask or imagine for ourselves. For your glory. Amen. So every pastor has their own process for writing a sermon. And um, I'm going to give you a little window into what my weekly process looks like. So in a normal week, I usually begin to read the passages for the week on Sunday night. I'll read the same passages over and over and over for the first couple of days of the week. I try to let them soak into me so deeply that I almost start to memorize them. They hopefully show up in my dreams. And all the while, I'm thinking through questions, my thoughts. Perhaps I'll think through how this passage reminds me of other passages in the Old or the New Testament, and I'll ponder all these connections, and then I'll be wondering, dear God, what do you have for us this week? So why am I telling you this? Other than to perhaps assure you that I've done some homework. <laughs> well, I suppose it's because I want this sermon to feel like I'm taking you along on my journey this week. I want you to feel the way I felt when I sat with this passage in Matthew. And along the way, I'm trusting that God, who is good, will let these scriptures soak into us, and we're all going to hopefully be drawn a little deeper into God's way of seeing and calling people. Because he's been seeing and calling people from the moment he created us, and he sees and he calls each of us now. Our reading opens with Jesus hearing about John the Baptist's arrest. And in response, we hear the Gospel writer talk about how he moves from Nazareth, which was the, mother, the home of his mother, Mary. It was also the place that his family returned to after they had spent years in Egypt as refugees. And he returns to a place called Capernaum, which is next to the Sea of Galilee. He's moving to a place that's sort of considered the backwoods or the frontiers. And Capernaum had a rather large mixed population due to Gentiles that were living in the surrounding area around the Sea of Galilee. It also had a mixed population because there had been um, a Jewish revolt about 200 years earlier in response the Seleucid Empire, the Greek Seleucid Empire, had moved their own colonists into the area to deliberately diffuse the Jewish influence in that area. And so this area was really mixed. It was like the Wild West, you know, the outer edges of the Jewish community. And this is where Jesus goes. But the background detail that the gospel writer supplies and that I want to focus on for just a moment comes in the form of a quotation from the book of Isaiah that begins our reading. And here it is. The land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, 
the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, upon them has the light dawned. Upon these people living in the margins, upon this community of Jews and Gentiles, God has chosen to make his light known. And what does it reveal? Well, it reveals that, in fact, they're living in darkness and the shadow of death. Now, I wonder, where else have you heard the phrase, the shadow of death, in the Bible? How about Psalm 23, right? Probably the scripture that many of us had, we learned as small children. Even though I walk through the shadow of death, God, you are with me, David says. So we see in the connection between these two passages that there's something both comforting and revealing about the light of God's dawning in Galilee. The light of God's presence assures us that we're never alone, according to Psalm 23. But according to Isaiah, the light of God also reveals just how sick and blind to the darkness we are. Without the light of God to illuminate us, we can either feel alone in our darkness, or we can deceive ourselves about just how healthy and filled with light we actually are. But when this light comes, the light of God actually dwelling in the midst of us, then we see just how prideful and selfish and jealous we really are. But as Psalm 23 reminds us, the presence of light also reveals that we are not left alone. We are given a great physician who can diagnose our sickness, but also comfort and strengthen us for the journey of healing and restoration that's ahead. And so calling always begins with an acknowledgement of our true condition and just how sick our world is. I had a college roommate who hiked the Appalachian Trail, the entire thing, right after he graduated. She didn't know what she wanted to do, so she was like, I'm just going to spend four months hiking the Appalachian Trail, which if you don't know, it runs from Georgia all the way up to Maine. And you have this like really small window of time that you have got to hike it, because if you get to the north, to Maine, too late, the weather is just, it's horrific, and it can be quite dangerous. Well, my roommate, who was actually quite an experienced outdoors person, she actually had to take several unplanned breaks along the way. So she ended up reaching the end of the trail, the north, much later than she had planned. And I remember afterwards talking to her on the phone and her telling me about how one of the last nights near the end of her trip, she and her hiking companion had gotten caught in a snow squall and they ended up pitching their tent in the complete darkness. And she told me after they spent a long time arguing about just where to pitch the tent, they angrily eventually just like settled into their sleep sacks and they didn't even light a fire, right? They just got into their tent and hunkered down. And it wasn't until the morning that they actually realized that they'd gone quite far off the trail and they ended up camping on a cliff edge, right? Their tent, their tent was pitched just inches away from the cliff edge on two sides. And if they had gone even one step further, they would have surely fallen off the cliff. The tent would have blown off the cliff. 
And the darkness had absolutely blinded them to their danger. And it wasn't until the light came that they saw just how close to death they had been. And that's what our passages are showing us, is that the light of Christ reveals just how dangerous our condition is. And so Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Recognize your danger, he says, but also recognize me. Right? He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. I am the fulfillment of John the Baptist's ministry. I am the kingdom of heaven coming near. I am the light which both convicts you of your sin and comforts you. And I think this is the first step to calling any of our neighbors to Christ, to any of us hearing the call of Christ. It's asking good questions, making thoughtful observations about the world we live in, and also about our own darkness and being honest about that. It's not shying away from just how dark our world is and pretending that it's lighter than it actually is. For how can anyone be drawn to the light of Christ unless they can perceive just how deep the darkness is? And so the King of creation, Jesus our Lord, goes for a walk along the Sea of Galilee. He's not walking the way that I think I often do, or maybe you do. I go for afternoon walks, and I use it to clear my head, to escape whatever tasks are on my to-do list, and honestly, just to get away from people sometimes. But Jesus, we see here, is walking with purpose and attentiveness. He's not trying to get away and ignore the people and the situations around him. He's walking a lot like God walked in the Garden of Eden, if you remember. After Adam and Eve eat the apple and turn away from God in disobedience, God goes walking in the garden looking for his lost children. And I think we're supposed to see Jesus walking along the lake the same way, as looking for his children. Jesus is looking for people who will undo Adam and Eve's rebellion by following him. And so he stops and he watches Simon and Andrew and sees that they're using this net that has weights on the edges. And the reason that was such a good net to be using where they were is that the lake, the Sea of Galilee is quite deep and dark. And this type of net with weights on the edge, it goes into the water quickly and it scoops up all the fish that are caught underneath. And so these are excellent fishermen. They know what they're doing. And Jesus sees that. They're doing the task that their family has probably done for generations. They're faithfully working on the lake that has likely sustained this community for generations. And after Jesus has watched them at work for a little bit, enough to see what they're doing, he calls them just like he first called Adam and Eve. Follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of people. There's no miraculous catch of fish that accompanies this calling as it does in Luke's gospel, which tells the same story, but a slightly different way. In that telling, Jesus teaches the crowd from Peter's boat, and then he invites them to lower his nets 
And he has, despite the fact that he hasn't caught anything the night before, he catches so many fish that the nets almost tear. And if you remember, Peter falls to his knees, right, in awe of what Jesus has just done. And then Jesus says his words of calling. I think it's really interesting that Matthew doesn't give us that story, right? All he gives us is Jesus seeing the fishermen and calling them and them immediately responding. And I think he does that because he wants to make a point. I think he wants to remind us that it doesn't take a miracle to respond to Jesus' call. It doesn't take the bending of the laws of nature for someone to hear Jesus' voice to them. Rather, what Matthew is emphasizing is that their hearts were ready, that there was something in them that enabled them to hear Jesus' voice. Matthew wants to emphasize that mysterious dance between his grace operating in us and our will and our desires, and how we cannot possibly understand the mysteries of when someone decides to follow him and when they don't. But what he does emphasize is that Jesus is, Jesus had the ability to see and perceive their desires at their most deepest level and to speak into that. We know, at least, that Andrew had been looking for the Messiah. In the gospel reading from last week, we know that he went so far as to become disciple of John the Baptist. And so we know from other gospel writers that these were men who were looking for the Messiah. They were seeking God, and Jesus met them at that point of desire. According to our reading from Psalm 139, Jesus has searched and known these disciples. He's perceived their thoughts, their hopes, and their dreams. These men are seekers. Jesus recognizes this desire and he calls them. But I find it so interesting. We don't find this phrase anywhere else in the Bible. But he calls them to be fishers of men. I find this really interesting because it indicates the way God always calls us, which is that he doesn't call us to abandon our gifts and stretch ourselves way beyond our capacities but he calls us exactly where we are. He calls us to transform our experiences, our skills, in our, the light of our new identity as his followers. I will make you, Jesus says. I think these words are meant to echo the creation story. Because Jesus was the one who knit Adam or Andrew and Peter together in their mother's womb, He made them marvelously, and now he's calling them. He's calling them to be reunited with him after years, after generations of estrangement from God. He's inviting them to submit all their desires, all their skills as fishermen to him, and to find intimacy as they walk with him. In Matthew's telling, there's not something compelling about Jesus' teachings There's something compelling about the way he looks at them with love, the way he speaks to them and sees them. I think Jesus saw something in their work 
and the way they did it. I think you saw something in their desire and their love for each other, their work together as fishermen that was reminiscent of the love and the unity of the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. Jesus recognized something that sparked the divine presence that comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. He saw their desire for significance and for the work to have meaning. He recognized the goodness of their work. And so he invites Peter and Andrew, James and John, who have been faithful in small things, to now take on greater responsibility in his work in the world. He's asking them to apply their skills that they gained as fishermen to the task of catching people for his sake. He's calling them to participate in his work of snatching people from the darkness. And so he calls them. He invites them to journey with him all over Galilee, to Jerusalem, to the cross, and eventually to their own crosses. Those of us who've been faithful at our work as government contractors, teachers, social workers, nurses, parents, we're now being asked to use all of those experiences and skills to be fishers of people. We're being called to actually see the people around us who are dwelling in the shadow of death in the shadow of their own deadly choices and misdirected desires, and to call them back to Jesus. And as it did for Jesus, that's going to require all of our attentiveness and sensitivity. It requires the awareness of the Spirit's guiding to ask just the right question at the right time and in the right way. It takes insight to recognize infinite worth in those that the world considers worthless. But that's our task. For through Christ, the light of the world who has come into the world, we have been made co-workers with Christ. We are the ambassadors through whom Christ is making his appeal to the world. I love this prayer from St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but ours. No hands, no feet on earth but ours. Ours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Ours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Ours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Ours are the hands. Ours are the feet. Ours are the eyes. For we are his body. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us to be like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, ready to hear your call to us, ready to submit all of our skills and desires to your will so that the world might perceive your marvelous works and be drawn to you. May you find us always willing to leave the comfortable, the known, and the urgent in order to have abundant life with you. And Lord God, grant us the humility to see the dignity and potential of each person. Help us to look beyond our neighbor's outward appearance 
and to see their hearts and their desires exactly as you do. Amen.